the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. And I, I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your descendants and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he, she, he said, she is my sister. He was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought, they will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, She is obviously your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. How could you do this to us? Abimelech exclaimed. One of my people might have easily taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us guilty of great sin. Then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. This morning we'll be talking about generational sin, at least this first point, and it kind of ties back into uh, several different things. So generational sin, and we can see the same thing that has happened with Abraham as we've gone through this passage as well, and Isaac now. Abraham and Isaac, they lied to the same people and to the same person. King Abimelech, they said, well, and they say, use the same lie. It's not like they're very creative. Say, they all each say that their uh, wife is their sister. And um, in both cases, you can make a case that they were telling the truth. Uh, one would be his cousin, but it's the same word in the Hebrew. And it would be his half-sister to Abraham. So is it a straight-up lie? No. But is it deceitful? Yes, it is. And as they come together, there is a consequence, I believe, that it divides Isaac's family and the Philistines. It's the beginning of that division that will haunt the Israelites for, dare I say, forever. I said it this sermon. I've been trying not to say that, but I did. Uh, it still plagues them today, doesn't it? The Philistines are still plaguing the Israelites today over in uh, Israel. So generational sin can be stronghold for the devil to work in our lives. Now, does it mean that we everybody succumbs to generational sin? No, it does not. Excuse me. Is it a pattern that we've seen in our environment, that is a strong pattern that we must break eventually. Absolutely. Broken relationships we wish we could have made whole in the day. And I think Isaac honestly does a very good job of making sure that on his part, there is no angst between the Philistines and the Israelites. Where we get the angst is more from the Philistines themselves. At least according to this account, which it's the Bible and it's true, so I'm going to believe it. Right? Because we stand on God's word. If we don't have that foundation, then we can fall apart. 
God was able to foreshadow how the king of Israel were going to fall back into these patterns as well. And we see this in Deuteronomy. Um, pretty soon, God's going to send Moses. Moses is going to write the law in Deuteronomy. He's going to foreshadow. You're going to have kings, and this is a pattern that they need to avoid. If they don't avoid it, there's going to be trouble. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, the king, it says, The king must not build up large stables of horses for himself or send the people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. He must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in the silver and gold for himself. So we see horses. That would represent power. Anytime it'd be like having a bunch of tanks, right? Um, horses represent power because they'd have a cavalry and they could take on anybody they wished. Um, women would represent sex. And silver and gold would be wealth. The big three like we talked about last week. Huh, it's like it all goes together. It's amazing. And who is supposed to read this every single time? What we're supposed to talk about is the kings are supposed to read this every time. And so King David does a pretty good job of following this for the most part. But then he gets a lot's wives and concubines. And then uh, King Solomon really struggles with this. He acquires all three of these acquires all three of these, and they ha- he falls into the trap of the kings. And very few kings of Israel get out of this trap. Okay, there's a few of them that we see that are good. Um, most of the kings of Israel go down that road. Uh, some of the kings of Judah are able to come out of that for a time being. So how are we supposed to break the power of generational sin? I have four suggestions, four things that work well in this, but I'm not saying this is an end-all inclusive list, okay? So here's four ways. The first one is seek the Lord in prayer. So we want to seek the Lord in prayer. It says in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you will be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces a wonderful result. Hey, Anna, can, can you hit twi- the keyboard twice so it goes to the next? There, right there. Thank you. So those online can see us. So seek the Lord in prayer. In prayer, first, we want to confess. Anytime we pray, we want to confess because we want to get right with God. We want to get uh, our books clean, in a sense, right? So if we walk before the Lord, we have an opportunity to... Uh, get right with him. So confess to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. When we are stuck in a sin that has plagued the family for years, God allows suffering sometimes to get us back in line with him. I believe that's why there's consequences to our sins. There's always consequences to sin. Does God always forgive? Yes. Does that mean tomorrow's going to be the same as today because of what we did? No, because there's consequences right? It's like if we decide to chop our hand off today, are we going to be a different person tomorrow? Absolutely, right? I mean, that's spiritually what we do when we um, struggle with sin. So God does clean the heart, but sometimes there is backlash and relationships are broken and, and things of that nature. And so 
we have to, sometimes we've got to make restitution to make those, those right. And sometimes that helps us combat generational sin is paying restitution. Um, we need to pray for a solution through Christ Jesus and rebuke the sin in Jesus' name. Now, what I like to do, and this is just a Shanism, is I rebuke that sin before, when I feel it coming on, during and after. And if I can do it those times, and it allows me to be sick of the sin and pursue the Lord. Okay, So if we can be sick of the sin as we're in the sin, that allows my heart to change. That I don't need that pattern anymore. I need to break out of that pattern and pursue the Lord. Number two, seek mercy from the Lord. Psalm 51 is a great, great hymn when it comes to confessions. 51, 1 through 3 says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stains of my sins. Wash my clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. This comes after a time that David um, had a hard time with Bathsheba, and he slept with her, kills her husband, and uh, tries to cover it all up. And it's like you look at this passage of Scripture and you say, where did that come from? David's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. But what happened is David started to get comfortable, didn't he? And when we get comfortable and we get out of God's words and we stop praying to him, we stop seeking him, that very capable man that is reducing sin in his life is very capable to slide back and do like a level 8 or 10 sin in this case uh, when he was used to doing 1s and 2s because he becomes his own God. And we got to be careful that. we got to guard our hearts against that. And that's where that confession and prayer on a daily basis really helps that. So seek God's mercy. He, he will cleanse our hearts through the blood of his son Jesus. And if we take something out of our life, we need to fill it up with something from the Lord. So if we take out um, lies in our life, we need to speak the truth more. If we um, take out... Uh, adultery, our adulterating heart, we need to pursue our wives or husbands um, more passionately and closely. If we have an idol in our life, we need to make sure that God becomes that number one in our life, and we need to relax in that relationship with Him. Number three, one thing that helps a lot is to seek wise counsel. To seek wise counsel and if we seek counsel, where, we, where can we find that? Well, one thing that I've noticed is the men's group last night. We were seeking counsel with one another. And so it says in Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, it's a good memory verse, is as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, or a friend in this case, right? When you have somebody that will build you up and that will pray for you, that will take your request to God, so that peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That is something that is precious and that you want to hang on to. And so as we sharpen one another, 
who is somebody that you need to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships? That would be my question to you. Who is somebody that you can pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships? It can be somebody in your household. It can be uh, a coworker at work. It could be somebody from church here. But we need to find somebody that we're pulling close that is going to spur us on and somebody that we feel safe enough to go and confess as well. Because don't be naive. We all have temptations. And the, the moment we think, oh, I'm fine, we're in trouble. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are, are no different from the other experiences. God is faithful. He will allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. Generational curses are not erased by continuing the same problems. Okay? If you do the same thing over and over again, expecting a change, that's almost that's the definition of crazy, right? I'm going to do it over and over, and it, I don't know why. I just fell right back into that pattern. Can you believe it? I mean, I didn't change anything, but I just went along with life, and I just thought I'd get better. Is that how we're wired? Christian, are you wired to follow the Lord? No, I think you have to passionately seek the Lord. If you're not seeking him, you're not going to find him. And if you don't find him, there's not going to be any change in your heart. That's a modified version of uh, Jeremiah 29, 13. You'll seek me when you find you when you seek me with all your heart. What if I go half-heartedly at the Lord? I don't know why I kept falling into this sin. I... I mean, I, I was reading my Bible, but I wasn't really meditating on it, right? If change, if you want to see change happen in your life, you have to change the patterns that we find ourselves in, right? We need to pursue the Lord. Ask yourself this question. Have you ever read the, through the Bible from cover to cover? If you've never done that before, that might be something you want to do. You know, we have those Bible reading plans out there that we're working on right now. Uh, at least the men are, is what we're going through. It's, it's something, some of, those, some of those are boring. Don't get me wrong. You get into Leviticus and Numbers, and I can only take genealogies for so long. But the nice thing about that plan is they don't stick you in there forever. They don't make you read all the way through the book of Numbers. But there's some really good nuggets in the book of Numbers. That's the, the best book when it comes to rebellion. Generational sin, if you want to combat generational sin, read the book of Numbers. You might have to skip over those genealogies and all those numbers, but uh, the story that happens in between there and the rebellion of the uh, Israelites as they wander through the desert is the best story on changing your attitude uh, before it's too late. There's also a hymn series, or a, a preaching series by James McDonald that was really good back in the day on that too, by that change my attitude before it comes too late number four implement the change and if i write implement down there it brings me right back to my farming days and if i'm going to talk about farming i'm going to have to talk about the implements they pull on the farm right you see these tractors pulling these whether it's a plow whether it's a chisel plow whether it's a field cultivator through the field 
and has a point where it penetrates into the ground, right? Whether that ground is super hard, super muddy, or somewhere in between where it should be tilled, there, it, those knives cut into the ground. What happens to a plowshare if it's dull? It kicks it right out, right? That's one of the loudest, scariest things you ever hear, right, Brian? You hear those springs or the, it goes, bam, just whips back in there. And it is loud, and you're like, I just broke. The, you're, you look back, and you expect to see the plow in the back there, and it's not moving, but it's still there. It's just one of the, the knives kicked out, right, because it was getting dull. And so that's why we need our brothers and sisters to sharpen us so we can penetrate that hard soil so it can be worked for the Lord. Amen? All right, that was half-hearted, so we'll work on that one, right? And you're like, oh, no. Um, but we need to disrupt the ordinary in our lives. What do we want to do? We want to be comfortable, right? When we get done, I think about this with school. When we get done, we get to our winter break, we get Christmas break, and we're like, whew, I just want to do nothing, right? That's, that's what I always wanted to do as a kid. And dad was like, "Woo!" I got two weeks where I can put you to work on the farm. We can finish that barn up, put, move the hay around, blah, 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 whatever it may be. And I was like, oh, thank you. But that has helped develop my work ethic, right? Work doesn't do it by itself, does it? It's amazing that cement just doesn't smooth itself out. No matter how much you stick that vibrator in there, you know what? You got to put your hands to the, to the plow. You got to put your hands to the trowel too, right? And that's what we got to do in our lives. If we want to see lasting change, the pattern's got to change. So what can you pull out of your life that you can put into your life? Right? It's like, well, pastor, I don't have enough time to do that. I don't have time to do that. that. I don't agree. We all have the same amount of time. What you're telling me is you're not prioritizing the time for that. I'm prioritizing the time to do nothing or to hang out with my friends or to do this sport or to do this job, but I'm not going to prioritize time for God's word, right? That was a hard truth when I heard that one. I heard that about a month ago. I was like, ooh, that one stung a little bit sometimes. But Romans 12, 2 says, Do not copy the pattern or the behavior or the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Youth, if you want to change that pattern, a good place to start is Thursday night Bible study. That's how we know that. Because when life brings its conflicts and strife, how will you handle it will dis- determine how you handle it will determine the character by which you are forged. Let's go to the next section. Genesis 26, 12 through 25. When Isaac planted his crops that year, he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted, for the Lord blessed him. He was, had become a very rich man, and his wealth continued to grow. He acquired so many flocks of sheep and goats and herds of cattle and servants that the Philistines became jealous of him. So the Philistines filled up all of Isaac's wells with dirt. 
These were the wells that he had dug by the servants of his father Abraham. Finally, Abimelech ordered Isaac to leave the country. Go somewhere else, he said, for you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away to the, from the Gerer Valley where, they, where he set up their tents and settled down. He, op- he reopened the wells his father had dug, which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names Abraham had given them. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerer Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But when the shepherds from the Gerer came and claimed the spring, this is our water, they said, and they argued over it with Isaac's herdsmen. So Isaac named the well Essek, which means argument. Isaac's men then dug another well, but again it was dispute. there was a dispute over it. So Isaac named it Sitna, which means hostility. Abandoning that one, Isaac moved on and dug another well. This time there was no dispute over it, so Isaac named the place Rehoboth, which means open space. For he said, at last the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. From there, Isaac moved to Beersheba, where the Lord appeared to him on the night of his arrival. I am the Lord your, your father. I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham. He said, "Do not be afraid, for I am with you and will bless you. I will multiply your descendants, and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of my promise to Abraham, my servant." Then Isaac built an altar there and worshipped the Lord. He set up his camp at that place. And he, his servants dug another well. Okay, remember that last sentence. His servants dug another well. We don't know what happened about that well yet. Conflict. Walking with the Lord when times are tough. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to walk with God first when times are tough? Remember. Times are tough all over. That's what my grandpa used to say. Times are hard all over, right? They weren't just hard for my grandpa. They were hard for everybody. In this, in this case, it was Isaac and his neighbors were all going through a drought. Times are rough all over, okay? And God told Isaac to stay in the land. Don't go down to Egypt. Go to, don't go back. This is not time for do, to do that. Isaac remains in the lands as commanded, and God blesses him. You see this a hundred times, which means that God is in it. The number hundred would mean ten times ten. He's doubly blessed by the Lord. And his neighbors see that, and they are jealous and uh, fearful, right? Because they... Say, wow, if he keeps up like this, he's going to take over the whole land. There's nothing we can do about this. And so what are we going to do? So they kick him out. They say, it's time for you to move. It's time for you to get out of here. Go on now. It's like you're shooing an old dog away. Get get on out of here, right? So they, they shoo out Isaac, and he has a decision to make. I am becoming powerful. I am becoming big. I can listen or I can stand up for what's mine. And he takes uh, a very gracious role, I think, and he moves away. 
he moves away back to his father's land and he opens that land up. And I think that is a great way to find a resolution. So he remains in the land and then he has to move away from a situation to find resolution. And the problem moves with him. The people of Greer, they, they see him, and then the next people say, hey, that's our water. Well, actually, it's not, but, um, and it could be at that point in time because there's a lot of underground streams that go through there, so he might have dug a well that was up river from them. Water's a big deal over in this arid climate. And so it, it could have been, um, we don't really know, or I don't know because I haven't studied the geology as much, right? But what's he do? Does he argue about the water? No, he seeks the Lord, right? He seeks the Lord. And that's what our, our common theme was last week. It was Isaiah 55, 6. It says, seek the Lord when you call, when you can find him, call on him while he is near. Cry out to God in prayer. When you get into a situation that you can't handle, ask the Lord, how am I going to handle this? Get into his word. And when you get into his word, challenge God in like David did in Psalm 39, 23 and 24. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Wow. Let's, you hear that again? Test me and know my anxious thoughts. I'd say the last 10 years. Uh, one of the key words in our society is anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot. I, got, I deal with a lot of anxiety. Well, a lot of people do. And um, some people have crippling anxiety, right? Have you ever asked the Lord to help deal with that anxiety? Dare I say, test that anxiety. Is there any merit to that anxiety? Right? This is straight out of Psalms. It says that's one way we can deal with anxiety. Point to anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Okay? Lord, get me back on track. I am, I'm going down this worry trail, and I don't know if I'm going to get back. And if you don't help me direct back, I know I'm not going to get back. So I'm about ready to go down this way. Can you pull me back in? Lord, direct my path. Show me where I can get back on. Lead me along this path of everlasting life. It's a powerful prayer right there. David. King David, okay? The guy that wrote the Psalms. You guys ever read the Psalms? That guy had some anxiety, okay? That guy, he knew how to go from high, high to a low, low really fast. And he does it usually in each psalm he writes. He usually starts off, low, Lord, low, low, like, Lord, save me. I'm about ready to die. I'm about ready. But then you sustain me. You lift me up. You pick me back on, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Just as long as you give, allow God's strength to set you on that rock instead of trying to rely on your own strength. That's the one thing that David excelled at. He never tried to chase his own anxieties away. He always reached out to God to do that. And then, so we first we seek the Lord. The second we seek resolution. 
So when things well up in us, when things get out of control, when things, when life throws us a curveball, is your first reaction anger? If you are to react to it angrily, I would suggest you go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. It says, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar at the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person and then come offer your sacrifice to the Lord. I could say the same thing about communion this morning. If you know you have a problem with somebody and you're about ready to take communion, set your communion down, go deal with the problem, seek restitution, seek forgiveness, and then come back and take communion. Okay? Paul gives us that same warning. If you take it in a, in a wrong way, or if you haven't surrendered to the Lord, it's better if you don't take communion. Okay? We'll talk about that when we get there at the end. So if your first step is anger, if you're quick to flare up like that, you need to be quick to seek restitution. All right? Self-control. When it's generational sin, or you see a pattern in others, first we don't want to judge, right? Because it says in, in Matthew chapter 7, Verse 1, judge not lest you be judged, right? That's verse 1. But then verse 2 says, for the measure that you judge others will be the same measure judged against you in heaven. What's that mean, Pastor? It says, well, when you point with one finger, you got three pointing right back at you, right? Because if you are going to take your speck out of uh, your neighbor's eye, you better make sure you got that plank out of your own first. Right? That's difficult. So anytime we deal with conflict resolution here at White Rose Fellowship Church, we always go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says, If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two friends with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then he or she won't accept the church's... If he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Okay. That's pretty harsh, right? Here's how I look at it. First, I'm going to go to my brother. If I got a problem with my brother, I need to go to my brother and deal with it. Okay, that's the first step. And it's what I'm always going to encourage you as, have you talked to that person yet? Have you talked to them? Have you um, told them how much that offends you or how that um, triggers you maybe? And that maybe they could change that pattern. Confront the sin in love. Confront the sin in love. How do you do that? The best 
The best example for this is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Is when Nathan confronts David about Bathsheba and killing of Uriah. Right? He tells him a story about sheep and a shepherd and a rich farmer and a poor farmer. The, poor far- the rich farmer takes the poor farmer's sheep, slaughters it for his guests, and David says, that man deserves to die. Right? And Nathan turns around and says, you are that man. You did that to Uriah, and then you killed him. And he was like, whoa, I just, I've pronounced my own judgment. And he seeks the Lord's forgiveness right then and there. Lord, forgive me. And because he does that, the God, God doesn't rip his kingdom away from him. He doesn't rip, he doesn't kill him as he's pronounced right there. Because he's seeking after the Lord. We all mess up, don't we? We all fall short of God's glory. Do we try to justify that mess up? Or do we turn to God and say, I messed up, I sinned before you. Will you please, please and beg for for his forgiveness? Right? There's, those are two different, the first one is rebellion. When you try to justify, well, he shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have been there. If he wasn't there, I wouldn't have done it. Those are all excuses, aren't they? We could all do that all day. I am a professional excuse giver. But the Lord is working and molding my heart, and I need to say, Lord, you know what? I, I could have done better. I could have done better. And Lord, will you forgive me? And I need to go to my brother and say, what can I do to make this right? I'm so sorry that I messed up. Will you forgive me? What can I do to make this right? It's always important to ask that. So go to your brother. Do it in love. If he does not listen, you need to involve two or three people that you respect. Okay? This wouldn't hurt. you got the church elders in this instance. You could have uh, other friends that respect that see the pattern as well. And say, you know, this is really bothering me and Chuck. And we need to talk to him. And um, how can we... Go to him. So you go take the direct approach then and say, man, I'm not the only one who sees it. These guys see it as well. And we need to, to work this out. You can be free of this. And sometimes people will have enough humility then to say, you're right. I need to work this out. I can get out of this. So two or three witnesses, the habit has to stop. We're here to help you out. It's kind of like an intervention, right? So then... If that doesn't work, we need to go to the church elders, right? When it says it take to the church, I would say take to the church elders and say, this is a pattern. I've confronted him. Um, Barry and Lloyd, we went and talked to, to Chuck as well, and Chuck's still not doing this. You like these names, Craig? I was just making them up as I go along. Um, and, and we see that he needs to change. If he doesn't change, it's going gonna, it's gonna to corrupt him, and he's going to die. We've had to do this with, I don't know, a couple, two, three times at church, and um, life-threatening. It's, you're yellow, dude. <laughs> you got you to gotta change. You can't, you got to stop. It was very crazy. And then they have to make a judgment on the situation. Why is it hard to do that? Why is it hard to 
follow the process of Matthew 18. Because the person who's confronting, one, you've got to make sure the plank is out of your own eye. Right? And you've got to be quick to admit when it is not. So I'm struggling with this too. That's a great way to build rapport with that person. I'm struggling with this thing too. I see it in your life. Can we work together to work this out? And you're like, I don't struggle with this. You're, I don't know what you're seeing. This isn't me, you know. Well, okay. All right. And then the other thing is they have to make a judgment because they just put your friendship on the line, right? When you confront somebody in sin, nobody's like, oh, boy, good. Pastor House has come to confront me with sin. I just love this. It's warm and cozy inside, right? Nobody likes that. Nobody likes to be confronted with sin. Nobody likes to be told that what they're doing is wrong, right? And the more arrogant we are down that road, the worse that confrontation is going to be. So when life brings us conflict and strife, how you handle it will determine the character by which you are forged. Let's go to the last point. It's short. It goes like this. Verse 28, chapter 26 of Genesis. One day, King Abimelech came from Gerir with his advisor, uh, Ahuzath, and, and also Pickol, his army commander. Why have you come here, Isaac asked. You obviously hate me since you kicked me out of your land. And they replied, we can plainly see that the Lord is with you. So we want to enter into a sworn treaty with you. Let's make a covenant. Swear that you will not harm us, just as we have never troubled you. We have always treated you well, and we sent you away from us in peace. And now, look how the Lord has blessed you. So notice, Abimelech always likes to take the credit, by the way. He does this with Abraham as well. So Isaac prepared a covenant feast to celebrate the treaty, and they ate and drank together. Early the next morning, they each took a solemn oath not to interfere with each other. Then Isaac sent them home again, and they left in peace. That very day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the new well they had dug. Remember, they were working on this well. We have found water, they exclaimed. So Isaac named the well Sheba, which means oath and to this day the the town that they grew up around it is called Beersheba which means well of the oath at the age of 40 Isaac married Esau married two Hittite wives Judith and the daughter of Berai and Basemath the daughter of Elon but Esau's wives made it life miserable for Isaac and Rebecca. Interesting. Your dad's name wasn't Barai, was it? Judy. Good, good. Whew. Scared me there for a minute. Finally, we end with this. Change starts with me. Change starts with me. The Lord God told Isaac to put down roots in that land. So he has a choice. Am I going to fight for the water that I have, or am I going to move and dig other wells? Isaac listened, and he begins to dig wells. And the Philistines, they push him farther and farther away. And when they are far enough away, 
Isaac follows through with God's command, and he continues to prosper. Now, King Abimelech, he might be dumb, but he's not stupid. He sees the Lord is continuing to bless Isaac just like he did before, and just like God blessed his father Abraham in front of the same king, right? Abimelech had the same issue with, with uh, Abraham. He says, let's make a covenant between you and I, says the king. And right then, Isaac has a decision to make. Am I going to hold a grudge? Am I going to remember what you've done? Or am I going to change and go through with this covenant and let this go? Am I going to show mercy? Remember, mercy found each one of us, right? And so we need to extend that mercy. So I ask you this morning, as we come down to the closing paragraph or so, how will you respond? How are you going to respond? When you have the moral high ground, when you're in the right and they are in the wrong, how are you going to respond? When your name is cleared after being dragged through the mud, how are you going to respond? Are we more concerned about our reputation or their salvation? Are you concerned more about your reputation or their salvation? Life isn't all about us. It is about sharing the love of our God and giving him the glory to others so they can pass it on to others, making disciples of Jesus Christ. God calls us to be something different than the world around us. He calls us to seek him. He calls us to repentance, to act, to actively seek resolution, to seek the Lord in prayer, to seek mercy from the Lord, to seek wise counsel, to implement change. Where are you getting this, pastor? Well, those are the, those are the points that I just had in the bulletin, right? That's the points. I will close with this illustration. It's a poem called, I Wanted to Change the World. When I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change the town. As an older man, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realized the only thing that I can change is myself, and suddenly I realized that if long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family and I could have made an impact on our town. And their impact could have changed the nation, and I could indeed have changed the world. When we want to see life change happening across the nations, that change has to start with us, right? And then when we change, it allows us to impact our family. And when our family's impacted we can impact our town and then when our town is impacted we can impact our county and when our county is impacted we can impact our state and when our state is impacted we can impact our nation when our nation is impacted we can change the world it all starts with us it all starts with focusing on our three-foot world right only the things that we can affect around us because when life brings us conflict and strife 
How you handle it will determine the character by which you are forged. In other words, when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Let's pray. Elders, you can come forward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that you died on the cross for us. Lord, when we come before you as broken sinners, Lord, I pray that we would be able to recognize that brokenness. Lord, open up our eyes that we might see what you have for each one of us. Forgive us when we turn to our own ways and to our own self-righteousness, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes to to reveal that self-righteousness so we would know what it means to seek God and his righteousness. And Lord, when we find those things you promise and all these things, other things will be added onto this. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to rest in your forgiveness. Forgive us this morning as we um, are about to take communion. Elders, you can come on up. Josh, you want to hit stop on that? Um,